0: Lesson 2, for April 2 through to 8, the ministry begins. Sabbath afternoon, April 2. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message that comes from your Word, that you care for us, that you love us, and that you provide salvation. But as we look at your Word this week and look at the ministry of Jesus and how that impacted him and those about him, we pray that... Your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us that we may more truly come to understand, know, and to love Him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Let's read that again, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. One of the great struggles of humanity has been to know what the meaning and purpose of our lives are and how to live them. After all, we don't come with written instructions tucked under our arms on how to live, do we? I didn't understand what the meaning of life was, said a 17-year-old boy from a well-to-do family who became a prescription drug addict. I still don't. But I thought that everyone else did, that there was this big secret that everyone was in on that I wasn't. I thought everyone understood why we were here and that they were all secretly happy somewhere without me. Paul Freyabend, a German writer and philosopher of science, confessed in his autobiography, So one day passes after another, and it is not clear why one should live. Hence the Bible, the Gospel, and the story of Jesus and what He has done for us. In Jesus, His pre-existence, birth, life, death, ministry in heaven, and soon coming, we can find the answers to life's most pressing questions. This week, we will look at the beginning of Christ's life and work here on earth, a life and work that alone can give full meaning to our own. Sunday, April 3, John the Baptist and Present Truth Matthew chapter 3 begins with John the Baptist, whose first recorded word in the text is an imperative repent in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. In one way, that's a summary of what God has been saying to humanity since the fall. Repent, accept my forgiveness, put away your sins, and you will find redemption and rest for your souls. And yet, no matter how universal that message John also put a distinct present truth spin on it, a message for those people at that specific time. Question. Read Matthew chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. What was the present truth message that John was preaching, along with his call for repentance, baptism and confession? And we'll also look at verse 6 as well. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. And saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who has spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And verse six, and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John also does something here that is done all through the New Testament. He quotes the Old Testament. Old Testament prophecy comes alive in the New, time and again, whether Jesus or Paul or Peter or John all quote the Old Testament in order to help vindicate, explain or even prove the meaning of what was going on in the New. No wonder Peter, even in the context of the miracles he had personally witnessed, nevertheless stressed in 2 Peter 1.19 the sure word of prophecy – when talking about the ministry of jesus question read matthew chapter 3 verses 7 through to 12 what message does john have for the leaders despite his harsh words what hope is being offered them here as well matthew chapter 3 beginning at verse 7 but when he saw many of the pharisees and sadducees coming to his baptism he said to them brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Notice how central Jesus is to everything that John was preaching. Everything, even then, was about Jesus and about who he was and what he would do. Though the gospel was presented, John also made clear that there will be a final reckoning, a final divide between the wheat and the chaff, and that it will be the prophesied one who will do that dividing. Hence more proof of how inseparable the gospel is from judgment. Here also is an example of how, in the Bible, the first and second comings of Jesus are viewed as one event as we see John, in the immediate context of Christ's first coming, talking about the second as well. Monday, April 4, The Contrast in the Wilderness Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1 reads, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Imagine this scene from the perspective of Satan himself, the divine, exalted being whom he knew as the Son of God had now lowered himself, had taken on human flesh in order to save the human race. This was the same Jesus whom he warred against in heaven, and who threw him and his angels out, as we read in Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. That serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. But now, this Jesus was what? An emaciated human being, alone in a harsh wilderness, with no obvious support? Certainly, Jesus would now be an easy target for Satan's deceptions. As Ellen White writes in The Desire of Ages, page 119, When Satan and the Son of God first met in conflict, Christ was the commander of the heavenly hosts, and Satan, the leader of revolt in heaven, was cast out. Now, their condition is apparently reversed, and Satan makes the most of his supposed advantage. End of quote. What a contrast. What a contrast. Though Lucifer had once sought to be like the Most High, as it said in Isaiah 14.14, Jesus had emptied himself of the glory of heaven. Here, in one scene, we can see the vast difference between selfishness and selflessness. The vast difference between what holiness is and what sin does. Question Question Compare Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 to 14 with Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through to 8. What does this tell us about the difference between the character of Jesus and that of Satan? Well, let's first of all start with Isaiah chapter 14 verses 12 to 14. How you were fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning! How you were cut down to the ground! You who weakened the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High." And then we compare that with Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through to 8. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Imagine how angels who had known Jesus in his heavenly glory must have viewed what was taking place as these two foes now stood face to face in a mode of conflict that the two had never experienced between them before. Though we have the advantage of knowing how this turned out, The angels, indeed all of heaven, didn't, and so they must have watched this conflict with rapt and fascinating attention. So to finish the day, Satan exalted himself, Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death. What can we learn from this powerful contrast, and how can we apply this important truth to ourselves? How should it impact the way we make certain decisions, especially those in which our ego is at stake? Tuesday, April 5, the temptation. question read Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through to 12. what happened here with these temptations? why did Jesus have to go through this? what does this story have to do with salvation? how did Jesus endure such powerful temptations under such hard conditions? and what should that tell us about enduring temptations? Well, let's begin with Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, afterward he was hungry. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 starts out with what seems like a strange thought. It was the Spirit that led Jesus into the desert to be tempted. We are supposed to pray that we are not led into temptation And, as it says in Matthew 6.13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Why, then, would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus this way? A key is found in the previous chapter when Jesus comes to John to be baptised. Seeing John's resistance, Jesus says in verse 15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfil all righteousness. To fulfil all righteousness, that is, to do what was needed in order to be humanity's perfect example and perfect representative. Jesus had to be baptised, even though he was sinless. In the wilderness temptation, Jesus had to pass over the same ground that Adam did. He needed the victory against temptation that we all from Adam onward have failed to attain. And thus, by so doing... Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages, page 117, Christ was to redeem Adam's failure. End of quote. Only he did so under conditions unlike anything that Adam had faced. By this victory, Jesus shows that we never have an excuse for sin, that there is no justification for it, that when tempted we don't have to fall, but through faith and submission we can overcome. As we have been told, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4 verses 7 and 8. So, to finish today. How does this account, by showing us in such a powerful way that there is no excuse for our sin, make our need for Christ's righteousness so essential? Imagine if we had to stand in our own righteousness without that covering and without justification for our sins. What hope would we have? Wednesday, April six, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew chapter four verse twelve tells about the imprisonment of John, thus ending his ministry. At this point, Jesus' ministry officially begins. The text doesn't say why. When Jesus heard about John, he went to Galilee. Only that he did. We can compare that with Mark chapter one verses fourteen to sixteen now after john was put in prison jesus came to galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of god and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of god is at hand repent and believe in the gospel and as he walked by the sea of galilee he saw simon and andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Luke chapter 4 and verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. Perhaps while John was still preaching, Jesus wanted to keep a lower profile, lest a rivalry arise. The Greek verb in Matthew chapter 4 verse 12, often translated departed, can give the idea of withdrawing, in the sense of avoiding danger thus prudent as always jesus perhaps was seeking to avoid trouble question read matthew chapter 4 verses 13 to 16 and isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 about jesus settling in the area of zebulun and naphtali what are these texts saying about the ministry Of Jesus, Matthew chapter four and verse thirteen, and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, "The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people." who sat in darkness, have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Let's compare that with Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Zebulun and Naphtali were two of Jacob's sons, and their descendants became two of the tribes that ultimately settled in the beautiful northern region of Canaan. Let's read about those two sons in Genesis chapter 35, verses 23 through to 26. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhal, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan-Aram. Unfortunately, these two tribes were among the ten tribes who gave up their faith in God and turned to the things of the world. Many of the Old Testament prophets railed against the sinfulness, the worldliness and the evil of these northern tribes who were eventually overrun by the Assyrians, who then scattered them around the then-known world. In turn, Gentiles settled in Israel and Galilee became a mixed population, a confused and dark place. Galilee's most famous prophet was Jonah, who ought to tell us something about their level of commitment. Whatever the problems in Galilee, there was this beautiful prophecy in Isaiah that even in the dark land of Zebulun and Naphtali, on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned, as we read in Matthew 4.16. In other words, here, where the need was so great, where people were deemed rude, backward, boorish, Jesus came and lived and ministered among them however exalted he himself might have been, we see the willingness of Jesus to humble himself for the sake of others. We see here, too, another example of how central the Old Testament was to the ministry of Jesus. So to finish today, how can we avoid the temptation to deem people as unworthy of our efforts to minister and witness to them? What's so wrong with that attitude? Thursday, April 7, The Call of the Fisherman Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Just like John, Jesus began his ministry with a call to repentance. He knew, as did John, the fallen state of humanity and the need for all people to repent and come to the knowledge of God. Thus, it's not surprising that his first public proclamation, at least as recorded here in Matthew, was with a call to repentance. Question. Read Matthew chapter 4, verses 17-22. What do these verses tell us about the totality of that call that Jesus has on our lives? Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, "'Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men.' "'They immediately left their nets and followed him. "'Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, "'James, the son of Zebedee, "'and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, "'mending their nets. "'He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, "'and followed him. "'Here, in the forgotten land of Galilee, "'was a small fishing partnership run by four young men, two sets of brothers.' These men apparently had a heart for God because for a while some of them followed John the Baptist. But to their surprise, John the Baptist had pointed them in the direction of another young man from their own region. These men had approached Jesus of Nazareth and asked to spend time with him. We read that in John chapter 1. And if we look at verse... Let's pick up the story at verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated, Teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who had heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated, a stone. The following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and all the, so the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. That's how this culture worked. Men would approach a rabbi and ask to follow him. But it was the rabbi who made the final decision about who his disciples would be. And when a rabbi asked you to be his disciple, it was a very exciting moment. Many people have grown up with the idea that when Jesus called the disciples at the sea, this was the first time they had met. But we know from John chapter 1 through to 5 that these men had already spent a year with Jesus, apparently on a part-time basis. As we read in Desire of Ages, page 250, Jesus chose unlearned fishermen because they had not been schooled in the traditions and erroneous customs of their time. They were men of native ability and they were humble and teachable men whom he could educate for his work. In the common walks of life, There is many a man patiently treading the round of daily toil, unconscious that he possesses powers which, if called into action, would raise him to an equality with the world's most honoured men. The touch of a skilful hand is needed to arouse those dormant faculties. It was such men that Jesus called to be his collaborators, and he gave them the advantage of association with himself. April 8 An evangelist came to town and advertised his meeting with this invitation. Come see a preacher tear a page out of the Bible. That no doubt brought a crowd. He then stood before them, opened his Bible and to their astonishment tore out a page. This page he said never belonged there. It's the page separating the Old Testament from the New. Whatever one might think of his theatrics, the preacher made a good point. These two books are really one. All through the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted. Time and again, events in the New Testament are explained and justified by either Jesus himself or the New Testament authors by references to the Old Testament. How often did Jesus make the statement in one form or another that Scripture must be fulfilled? whether from Jesus himself, who repeatedly pointed back to the Old Testament writings, and we can find this in John chapter 5 and Luke 24 and Matthew 22 and John chapter 13, to Paul, who was always quoting the Old Testament, and just a few are in Romans chapter 4 and 11 and Galatians chapter 4, to the book of Revelation with an estimated 550 Old Testament allusions. The New Testament constantly links itself to the Old The Old and New Testaments are God's written revelations to humanity of the plan of salvation. Though, no question, some parts of the Old Testament, such as the sacrificial system, are no longer binding upon believers, we must never make the mistake of somehow relegating the Old Testament to an inferior status to the New. The Bible is composed of both testaments, And from them both we learn crucial truths about God and the plan of salvation. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. One, we can see the various ways that Satan tempted Jesus and how, in each case, Jesus didn't fall prey to any of the temptations and deceptions behind those temptations. Notice, too, just how central the Word of God was here. Though Jesus was the Lord himself, now, as it says in romans eight three in the likeness of sinful flesh, he used the scriptures as a means of defence against the devil's temptations. If Jesus himself had to do that, what should that tell us about how central and crucial the Bible needs to be in our lives, especially as we struggle with temptation, though we might know in principle that we are to use the Bible in our battle with temptation. How in practice do we do that? What are some ways we can use the Bible to help us withstand the assaults that we all face? And question two. Why is humility so crucial a trait for Christians? How can we learn to be and stay humble? What role should the cross play in helping us in this crucial area? Side Story The Tooth Part two The Story so far. Newlyweds, Colin and Melva Winch, were on their first mission assignment in the Solomon Islands as nurses. During one of Colin's first outpatient clinics, a patient came in needing a truth extraction. While Lucana, the clinical assistant, firmly held the patient's head in place, Colin gave the patient an injection. Selecting the lower jaw forceps, Colin approached the apprehensive patient, while Lucona held Jacob by the hair. Colin planted his feet firmly on the floor, gripped the molar, squeezed and pulled and pushed. The tooth didn't move. Failure as a dentist had become a real possibility. The day was hot and steamy. Any ventilation that might have reached Colin was blocked by the curious spectators – Those with a clear view of the procedure continued the commentary to those who couldn't see. There were beads of perspiration on Colin's brow, also on Jacob's, although for different reasons. Colin selected alternative forceps and gripped the offending tooth once more. Jacob sank deeper into the chair, restrained by Lucana. Pull, push, pull. It seemed like an hour to Colin as he worked without success. Some of the observers were beginning to have doubts. Others were leaving, deciding the new dentist was no good. Then Jacob said, "'Doctor, you have forgotten something.' "'No, I don't think so, Jacob,' he replied. Colin checked the sterile tray. All was in order. "'You have forgotten to pray, Doctor.' Incredulous at his own forgetfulness, Colin and Lucana helped Jacob out of the dental chair and the three knelt in prayer. The spectators whispered the news, "'They're praying!' Expectations rose again. Some, who were about to leave, waited to observe the answer to prayer. Back in the chair, Jacob received another pain-deadening injection. Taking the same pair of forceps, Colin offered another silent prayer and placed his feet firmly on the floor once more, gripped the molar and pulled. Those four huge curled molar roots came out as easily as pulling a nail out of soft timber – It's out! went up the cry as Colin held up the offending tooth. In his excitement, Lucana had failed to loosen his grip on Jacob's hair, but with an enormous grin, Jacob praised God for the miracle. So did Colin. His reputation was intact, and his dental practice began to flourish. This story has been reprinted from Winchy, Mission Stories of Colin and Melva Winch by S. Ross Goldstone. With permission from Signs Publishing in Warburton, Victoria, Australia, to enjoy more adventure stories from the Mission Service, the book may be purchased at www.adventistbookcenter.com. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful.